3: But before we talk to Denise and Wanda, um, I wanna say a couple of months ago, we brought on the co-chair of the local chapter of showing up for racial justice. And they had a really powerful conversation about what that organization is doing to try and, and, and enlist and recruit white people to address and deal with the issues of racism. So in light of what happened in Charlottesville over the weekend, We are really happy to bring Beth Applegate back on with us, so she can tell us what how her organization is addressing that whole issue and any related issues at a national level. So, Beth, welcome back to Bring It On. Welcome indeed.
4: Thank you, William.
3: And uh, again, I want to start off by by asking you. um, Well, first of all, tell us, give us a recap of what your organization does, and then we'll go right into last weekend's events.
4: Sure, thank you very much. So I am the co-chair along with Jennifer Brooks of a local chapter of a national organization called Showing Up for Racial Justice, also known as SURGE. And SURGE was founded in the response to the election of President Obama And decades of requests from people of color saying to white people, please talk to your own people, organize your own people, engage them in a multiracial movement for justice. And so Surge locally here in Bloomington is about a year old and we provide training. Um, We provide opportunities to dialogue. We've shown several films and facilitated uh, discussions of those films. And I was honored yesterday to speak at the Solidarity uh, Rally on behalf of what we're doing.
3: Okay, and we'll get into that a little bit later on also. But, you know, Beth, considering everything that your organization does, it, it almost seems prophetic because it seems like Surge was just custom made. To, to address some of the uh, uh, issues, activities, the attitudes, and the racism that took place in Charlottesville last weekend. So can you tell us um, what how Surge is addressing this at the national level?
4: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, so Surge, um, with Indivisible and many other local organizations across the country um, helped organize the rallies that we saw here in Bloomington and across the country. Um, We also are building our momentum Um, As more and more people kind of wake up to the overt racism that we're beginning to see in our country again, I mean, I want to say this is something that has always been here and has never gone away, Mm -hmm. but certainly our current president has created an environment in which white supremacist neo-Nazis are feeling more emboldened here in Bloomington and in other places um, to let us know what they think. And so surge nationally and locally, we really focus on bringing white folks together who want to do something um, and maybe don't know what to do. How to interrupt racism? How do I have that conversation with Uncle Ray? How do I say something to my neighbor who you know, uh, has a, a white supremacist flag out? Um, what do I say to a student that is wearing uh, a Confederate flag cap? And we help white people practice interrupting racism. And we can't just stop there. While we know we have to change the hearts and minds of white people individually, we know that racism is also structural. So, um, Surge is in a position to help local nonprofits here in Bloomington um, with anti-racism, implicit bias training, and really thinking about what are the components of an organizational equity and inclusion process. So, we work both at the individual and at the structural level.
0: Yesterday being Sunday one of my thoughts was one of the things I hear from this right-wing group these guys are that they're all Christians they have these Christian mm-hmm. values and I was thinking yesterday as people were sitting in church they're sitting next to many of the same people who are, are supporting these type of ideas um, have you gone to any clergy to speak to them about bringing this issue up in church Since so many of them seem to be thinking that this is the followings or this is the way of Jesus.
4: Yes, um, surge nationally has a number of different um, focus groups and chapters. So we have a religious chapter. We have a families chapter that helps parents, white parents with young kids, Um, we have an interracial chapter that focuses on the issues that interracial couples face. Um, So yes, we are in dialogue, um, working with the clergy, working with parents and children, um, and also working to support um, folks who are in interracial relationships.
0: As we were talking before the show, you know, even here in town in Bloomington, it seems that people are getting more emboldened. the next-door neighbor of, of, of a colleague had a, a con- the Confederate flag on his truck today as I was coming to the show, and I did not know what to say without mm-hmm. being confrontational.
2: Mm-hmm. So you
0: mentioned that that you train and, and you teach white people how to talk to people when they see this, whether it be their cousin, their uncle, or whatever. What do you tell them?
4: Mm-hmm. Great question. Well, and I had to, you know, an opportunity today, Cornelius, to practice what I preach, in the sense that I um, was with my 94-year-old mother at the IU Optometry Center, and a young man was sit- a young white man was sitting across the room from me with his Confederate cap on. And so here's what I said. And here's probably what I would coach other white people to say. I started with a question. I went up and I sat, sat next to him and I asked him if I could speak with him and he said yes, and I said, "What does that cap mean to you?" And he said, "Well, it's about my heritage." And I, you know, nodded my head and you know actually posted this on Facebook today and got some good coaching from William, you know, saying the next question could have been, "So tell me more about your heritage." And, you know, before I could ask my next, next question, he said, well, I got this from my cousin, and, and it's not racist. And I, you know, looked at him, and I said, you know, the impact on me and that symbol is that it is racist to me. And I asked him if he was aware of the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, and he said, yeah, sort of, but, but that wasn't really racist. And I said, yes, I, I really think it it is. And I said, in light of that, um, I'm really uncomfortable with you wearing this hat and the symbolism of the, of the Confederate flag. Um, and I know a lot of other people in Bloomington would be really uncomfortable. And he just looked at me and said, well, you have your opinion. And what I know about white people is that, um, and Ann Braden, who you know was organizing um, with uh, Ella Barker and others in the '60s, really talked about capturing the hearts and minds of white people. And I think we need to do those kinds of conversations. Start with inquiry. Start from a place that. Um, I could tell by the end of the conversation he was squirming in his seat a little bit. He was uncomfortable being asked that. Um, And, you know, that is different than if I witness um, violence going on. And one of the uh, trainings that we're talking about bringing uh, to the city of Bloomington is bystander training. What do you do if you're any person who's witnessing an active uh, an act of violence. And so I think we have to differentiate between inquiry and interrupting and challenging people about their beliefs, about their symbols, and when we're actually facing uh, violence. And so there would be different, a different skill set and a different intervention for both of those. But today I started with some questions while at the same time being really clear that I disagreed and believed that the confederate flag was a racist symbol. You know,
3: um it sounds like <clears throat> you have many resources and tools at your disposal to to coach people at, and how to uh, address those situations, how how to respond to them and and how to navigate through something like that. But the, in my mind the first thing you have to know how to do is how to crack that egg mm-hmm. because I have to be able to assess the situation, engage this person, and make a determination if it's uh, even safe to approach this person. Now the the gentleman that you saw, sitting there with his girlfriend in the clinic, um, I think after a few minutes it would be safe to assume that it's okay to approach him Mm -hmm. in a respectful tactful manner. And the response that he gave to you, uh, "This is my heritage." That's that. That's something that he heard from somebody. That's why I said my next question would have been, would have been, "What is your heritage?" Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt in my retired military mind, he wouldn't have been able to answer that. Mm-hmm. And so, and that would have opened the door, mm-hmm. you know,
0: a huge door, right well, there. Well, maybe, maybe not. It could have also closed the door out of embarrassment. He may have got to the point of gotten very defensive because he did not would not have known how to answer that question
3: that's true that and you know that's part of the risk that you have to take in addressing this and something you said earlier uh actually before we went on air about having a difficult time getting white people to sign on mm-hmm. I have always thought uh like back when I was on active duty um I used to to teach and train on uh, racism, sexism, uh, things of that nature. What I found out was the main thing that kept whites from even having the discussion was the nature of racism, slavery was so horrifying. They were actually embarrassed and afraid to talk about it because it's just too ugly. It's like this uh, picture that you might you might look at and it's so graphic you just don't want to discuss it. Mm-hmm. And that's the same effect that certain uh, aspects of, of, of racism you know have on, on different people.
4: I think that's absolutely right, you know, William. Um, I think white guilt is a real issue that we have to over, overcome. And I think the other thing that I know about white supremacy and the system of white su- supremacy is you know, its sole purpose is to keep us separated and keep us isolated. And you know, we are taught from day one as white people um, not to talk about race, not to raise it. Um, and that is the way white people, and I'm calling on you in, in Bloomington and beyond, that is the way that we keep our positional power and we keep racism in place. We have to learn to move beyond the white guilt we have to move beyond what a colleague of mine, Robin uh, D'Angelo, coined, white fragility, where we immediately become defensive. If somebody says that sounded racist or, you know, that sounds like white privilege, chances are um, it is. Um, part of my journey in doing this work is to come to the understanding that racism lives in me and that I have to continue, it will be a lifelong practice and journey and mistakes will be made along the way. And one of the things that I would also raise to white people out there, you know, listening is that we have to move beyond our perfectionism. That's also part of white culture.
3: Can, can you explain that? You, you mentioned it a couple of times. I don't exactly understand.
4: Yeah, I mean. yeah, sure. So um, what I know for myself and what I know from talking to other white people is like we want to get it right. What if we don't say it right? What if we don't do it right? What if we make a mistake while we're doing it? And so even in, you know, what I posted today, just to remind Bloomingtonians that racism is here in Bloomington with my little uh, encounter with the young white man at the IU Optometry Clinic, um, lots of folks came behind and said, you coulda, woulda, shoulda, said this, done that, et cetera. Yes, and you know what? I did something. And instead of not doing anything, because I could have gotten up in my head and thought, well, what if I don't do it right? What if I don't say everything? What if I don't know? You know, on the one hand, yes, educate yourself, right? It is the responsibility of white people for us to know our racist history. On the other hand, an opportunity like that, I planted a seed. And who knows if that will germinate and take hold in that young man's heart, and maybe he'll think twice about putting that cap out. Back on can't promise it and we we've got to move beyond white silence
0: you know we interviewed a uh, I guess the reformed uh, white supremacist uh, several years ago and I have to admit when Bev Smith and I first interviewed him I, I came in with these perceived ideas and, and he blew me away I'm hoping we can play that again one day but you mentioned something about a lifelong journey mm-hmm. And one of the things that that I thought about as you said that was, any way we can get in, because see, racism is learned. You aren't born a racist. Mm -hmm. So is there any way from kindergarten, from Mm -hmm. K through 12, Mm -hmm. there can be some very honest, very real dialogue and books in our education system to deal with this, since us adults seem to be so afraid to speak the truth out of the mouths of babes. I mean, is, is, has it any dialogue or conversations been thought about, done about, uh, about tried to implement it in the schools from the very beginning?
4: So, yes. Um, and there actually, there was a curriculum that was just put out by Teaching Tolerance yesterday on Charlottesville. And so, for educators in the MCCSE school system, I would recommend that you look um, to Teaching Tolerance for those kinds of curriculum, Um, and also again, the Surge National Organization has a group for parents um, who are raising who want to raise anti-racist white children. And there are lots of resources of books and how to have the conversations of white parents. I mean, we talk a lot about the conversations black parents have to have about staying safe and staying alive when encountering police and you know other authorities in the community. White parents also need to be talking to their children about their—and it needs to be age-appropriate, and there are lots of resources that are out there for um, age-appropriate—to talk about um, what happened in Charlottesville, what has happened and continues to happen in this country, and educate white kids about the injustice of racism.
3: I have a question. Cornelius mentioned something earlier about people being— Not born racist, but that it is a learned state of mind and behavior. I'm not 100% on board with that. And I know that is the prevailing way of thinking, but I'll tell you why. Um, I think that there are certain people who are predisposed to be racist in their lives at some point in their lives. Because of their
0: environment or Uh, just because of their DNA makeup?
3: Yeah, because of the DNA, because of the, the, the way that the brain uh, works. You know, if you can say, if you can argue, there are some people who say people are not born gay. They're learned. So if you can agree that people are born gay, then is it, is it such a stretch to think that someone can be born racist? You know, it, it just takes a while for it to I manifest itself. I have thought
4: about that either, William.
3: So that's my thinking that's my thinking but i want to shift to charlottesville uh, for a minute now something that i've always thought and and i've posted this on facebook uh many many times um you see all these young white men they they seem to uh make up the majority of the crowds there but here's just a whole mob of young uh, let me say angry white men And David Duke said that they were uh, carrying out the wishes of Donald Trump. So here you got to hear somebody on the news said the other day, here you got a guy that uses a gold toilet and he convinces all these poor people that he's representing them. And it is my firm belief that if people like David Duke and and people in high places in power in corporate America, uh, if they had their way and they're able to keep their foot on minorities, who do these people think is going to be next? If you're not a part of that elite, who do you think they're going to put their foot on next? Those same guys that are out there protesting and and saying that they're taking you know making America white again, you you you're next.
4: I agree with you, William, and I think the other thing that I would want to share is that I think um, we white people need to be very careful about, uh, and and not be careful, stop demonizing poor white, poor white, uneducated people. Um, You have some, as you just said, you know, white people with gold, gold toilets who are racist. So this is not about being uneducated. This is not about being poor. This is about the legacy of violence of white people from the beginning of history in the United States. And so, obviously, we all live intersectional lives and class and race and gender and sexual orientation. All of that is in all of us. And to parse out and for white people to begin to, again, do what I like to call, um, and I have to call myself into accountability. I'm doing my good white person shtick in my head again. Oh, there are those those white people, those white people who wear swastikas, those are the white people who chant all lives matter, those white people who X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank here, and I'm one of the good ones. And when I catch myself doing that, I have to again say, stop, Beth, stop. Because the racism lives in me, and it is much more worth my time to think about how the continuum of white supremacy lives in me. Those beliefs, those behaviors, the way in which, um, for example, just the other day, I was walking down the B line, not a stitch of ID on me, and I thought to myself, how many people of color do I know in Bloomington or anywhere would go out of the house without one piece of ID on them? Probably not. So, you know, we often as white people think, oh, white supremacy is those people, the extreme acts we see. White supremacy is in our organizations is the network of systems between healthcare and education and financial institutions that result in in unequal outcomes
0: Now, that, I love what you just said uh, a lot of people that I've, I've seen are on this Colin Kaepernick I'm boycotting football because of what happened to Colin Kaepernick and I'm not going to get into that situation but I will say this and we kinda mentioned it earlier to me they're going after the wrong people. How about all of the NFL sponsors? Um, it seems to me that if you want to hit them where it hurts, you hit them where the pocketbook affects gets affected, and that's who tells the owners what time it is. And I haven't heard one person say boycott the sponsors. So it seems to me that a lot of times people may want to have the right, I want to do something, and not know how to do it. So with that in mind. How can local people and people who may be out of this area even listening contact you to become a part of Surge?
4: Great. Thank you. So um, we have a local Facebook. Uh, It's Bloomington Showing Up for Racial Justice. So you can reach us there. We meet the third Thursday of every month at 6 p.m. in the Monroe County Public Library. Our next meeting is in September, and if you're anywhere in the listening area in Indiana, you can Google showing up for racial justice and then look for where the different chapters are in Indiana or in any state that you live uh, within the United States.
0: Now, you mentioned that this is basically instructions to teach white people how to deal with certain situations. People of color who are
4: interested and want to join and become a part, are absolutely welcome. And in fact, we've had several local people of color come and really add depth and lived experience um, to our meetings. Um, So everyone in um, Bloomington and everyone across the United States in a surge meeting um, is welcome. And I'm so glad that you actually asked that question, because I think one of the things that surge faces is this misconception that surge is white supremacy. That somehow, you know, white on white people working together um, is is something that shouldn't be done. And so we do a lot of education. So thanks for the question. Um, we are an anti-racist white community. We welcome all. And we just want to be clear <clears throat> because some people of color, you know, don't want to come in and see the very basic questions that some folks still Um, have um, or the disbelief that we're in a you know that we're not in a post-racial environment and sometimes that's just too painful it's re-wounding re-triggering and everyone's welcome.
3: Do you think that uh, people of color may be a little bit mistrustful or suspicious or even cynical uh, towards what your organization and what you do? I mean
4: of course they are and I think they should be and you know that's part of the reason that <clears throat> one of the core values of Surge is also to be in accountability relationships wherever wherever there is a chapter, yeah. and so we're new, um, and Jen and I have intentionally met with other people of color in Bloomington to get feedback, to ask where we can be of service, um, and to be clear that we want to um, build the skills of white people to join. In fellowship of people of color leading the anti-racist movement in Bloomington and beyond,
0: you mentioned something that I find <clears throat> very interesting. You mentioned some of the questions that you still receive that, yes. that they made. Please, and I, I would love to hear some of the questions that you come out that you came up with uh, that people ask because I we have no clue I mean, of that mindset.
4: Okay, so I think I know what you're you're asking. So, for example, I got a private message today on Messenger, associated with Facebook, of someone who said, you know, I came to a surge meeting about a year ago, and I I didn't know what you were talking about, and I didn't know why you were talking about it. And I went to the rally yesterday, and I get it. Thank you for the work you're doing. I'm going to come back to surge in September. Right? So... Sometimes white people again if they don't see in Bloomington the Confederate flag that I saw in my own neighborhood today or don't conf- you know they live a sheltered life in Bloomington and they don't experience racism up close and personal it can be easy to believe oh no we're post-racial or or or, or that's in an urban community or or that's out there that's not here that's not me that's not in my family when in fact, again, when we begin to unpack all the ways that the continuum of beliefs around we are superior get unpacked, people realize that they do have questions, they, they wake up. Um, there's a seminal article that I would recommend, if you're just starting on this journey, white folks, um, written by Peggy McIntosh. And it's called Unpacking the White Knapsack. And it talks about how um, white people can walk in the mall or walk in a store and not be followed. I can go into CVS and count on finding a Band-Aid called Flesh that pretty much matches my skin. Um, I can count on... um, when I speak in a meeting, to be taken seriously um, and not asked to represent a whole group of people. Um, So it's these little ways that because um, white supremacy is so insidious and we're raised in it, so it's like the, the analogy of the fish, it doesn't know it's out of water until it's out of water and is breathing air. We white people don't know Um, that our educational system, our banking, World War II, my dad was a veteran, came home and he took care, he took advantage of um, the The GI GI Bill. African American men who served in World War II were not allowed to take care of the GI Bill. We know that redlining goes on in financial institutions. There are so, we know that Social Security... Um, that many people count on w- is not was not provided to domestic workers who worked many many years and did, you know, labor that they should have been compensated for. So when I talk to white people about these issues, they don't know. They didn't know about the GI Bill. They don't know what redlining is. They didn't know that the social Social Security yeah, didn't yeah. cover domestic w- workers. And our educational systems don't teach us the truth of history
3: let me get we got about a minute left but i want to get one more quick question in there based on something that you said earlier you said we have to stop um criticizing poor uneducated whites so <clears throat> at some level are they victims also because they they uh they seem to they, they fall for the con?
4: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think any working poor, any anybody who is experiencing poverty, is a victim. Um, and it, you know, it's not only of uh, our current president. It it our our country has not come together to deal with the root causes of poverty. Um, and it's very easy to blame poor white people, poor black people, poor people in general. And so, yes, I agree with you. I think. Um, Poor white people have fallen victim, uh, certainly, to the current environment uh, and the current uh, policies and actions of President Trump.
0: Beth, I really want to thank you for taking the time on short notice at that for for joining (laughs) us this evening. My pleasure. Uh, We want to thank Beth Applegate, co-chair of the Bloomington organization Stand Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, for joining us to discuss a variety of social justice incidences, incidents, and concerns that seemingly
3: are manifesting
0: with greater and greater regularity in our country.
3: For sure. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, we would like to hear it. Send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we share any and everything affecting the African American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. At email address once again, bring it on at wfhb.org.
1: Support for WFHB comes from Juanita's Restaurant, located at 620 West Kirkwood. Juanita's Restaurant is a family-owned and operated business that brings Mexican cuisine to Bloomington, Indiana. Catering, catering service is also available. More at 812-339-2340 or online at juanitas.com. Cardinal Spirits Distillery on the B-Line has opened a new kitchen featuring local, seasonal food made from scratch to complement their craft cocktails. Dinner available Tuesday through Saturday at Cardinal Spirits, 922 South Morton Street.
2: Love and happiness Yeah Something that can make you do wrong i make you do right Yeah Love Love and happiness Yeah. Oh, baby. Love and a happy man. Love and a happy man. (laughs) i <laughs>
0: You just heard Love and Happiness,
3: a signature classic by Al Green. This is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? If so, you're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. It's a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News, or you can always visit our news website at wfhb.org news.
0: To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB News website at
3: wfhb.org news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at wfhb.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And
0: I'm Cornelius
3: Wright. At the top of the hour, we shared that we would be having a discussion with Denise Valkyrie and Wanda Savala, two participants in this weekend's protest rally, Stand in Solidarity with Charlottesville. Bloomington comes together to say no to white supremacy. Denise joins us in studio, and Wanda will be joining us by phone shortly. So... Denise, welcome to Bring It On. You haven't been here before, right? No, I haven't. Okay, oh, welcome. welcome to Bring
5: It On. Well, thanks for having me.
3: Well, before we actually get into yesterday's protest rally, um, <clears throat> I want to talk about your work with the uh, Women's March in Washington D.C. Because, as I was saying earlier, uh, for me, I didn't know anything about it. I, I woke up that morning that it was taking place, and it was it was massive, and it was worldwide, and I was just in awe, and I couldn't help but to s- just sit there and watch it. Right. So what, tell us about uh, the role that you played.
5: Well, um, the night of the inauguration, <laughs> or of the uh, election, I had been working in a newsroom as a volunteer and watching the uh, election results come in. And uh, th- as the night wore on, my hope faded, and uh, I got home that night uh, about 1 o'clock in the morning and uh, saw a post from a woman who said, we should march on Washington. And I said, well, that sounds like a great idea. So I created an event for Indiana. And at the same time, another woman, uh, Teresa, um, also created a, an event. So there were two events that were started in Indiana for the March on mm-hmm. Washington. The woman that had started the event for the whole country, her name is Teresa Cooper Shook. Uh, she's from Greenwood, Indiana. She's a grandmother, and she was living in Hawaii. And she felt like there needed to be a response to the uh, the policies and the rhetoric that had been presented during the election process, and as a resistance towards what that could mean as him being president so I went to sleep I invited had invited 40 people when I woke up there were 500 people that said yeah that's great let's do it and it kept growing until we had about 6,000 members there were people throughout the uh, state of Indiana that also wanted to uh, participate and um, wanted to participate in the March throughout the state because they wouldn't be able to go to Washington, DC. We started fundraising. Um, I developed some SCARs uh, with some help of a, of a, one of the other women that were organizing. Uh, we put together a board. We got every bus that we possibly could. We sent 25 buses. We sent people um, that wanted to go that wouldn't have the funds to go with the SCARs and the fundraising that we did. Um, we have helped people participate in panels that were taking place in Washington, D.C. We helped people get to Indianapolis. We helped them get to Lafayette. Um, and we, it, it was just amazing, you know, the, the amount of growth that came from that organically, from the people that were interested at, in um, uh, resisting the policies that we, we now we're seeing come to fruition.
0: You know, it, it's so interesting you should say that. I'm sure across all demographics, there must have been a lot of different conversations about problems that are going on, but were there any major problems and focuses that the majority of women, women saw that were really relevant to that march?
5: Well, it, it, we kept saying, you know, women's rights are human rights, are human's rights. That, you know, women are the mothers of the world, you know, we we've given birth to everybody. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't be here. E-
3: even Donald Trump.
5: Even Donald Trump had a mother. You know, um, I wonder how she feels about what's going on.
3: But I, well, and and her KKK membership, I'm sure she was okay with. Was it. she really? Yes. See, that's
5: her thing. I don't even want to.
3: Both his parents. Really? Yeah.
5: I'm I'm not surprised. So, um. But that's what happened, you know. That's what came about. And so, from the Women's March, the mission—I want to just say what our mission is. Um, all right, great. Is to harness the political par- power of diverse women and their communities to create transformative social change. The Women's March is a women-led movement providing uh, intersectional education on a diverse range of issues, and creating entry points for new, gra- new. Grassroots activists and organizers to engage in their local communities through trainings, outreach programs, and events. And the Women's March is committed to dismantling systems of oppression through nonviolent resistance and building inclusive structures guided by self determination, dignity, and respect.
3: Okay, since we have, I uh, understand we have Wanda Savallo on the line now.
1: Yes, I'm here.
3: Wanda, welcome to bring it on. Welcome, Wanda. Thank you. Okay, since we got both of you here, uh, let's go ahead and talk about yesterday's protest rally. And Wanda was one of the featured speakers, and she was just on fire. So, Wanda, why don't you go ahead and reflect on some of your comments uh, from yesterday's protest rally?
1: Sure. So when I think about my comments for yesterday's rally, I was really trying to, you know, speak directly to the audience. I know that sounds very obvious, um, but to make it even more explicit, you know, Bloomington is a fairly white community, uh, which is just fine. Um, but I think the message that we need to ha- hammer home to um, our white allies, many of whom are in the crowd, is that we really need to open up conversations. Uh, right now, the time is ripe for that work. Um, friends, neighbors, children, family members, they're all hungry for for some kind of answers, um, even if they may not have the right words to ask or the right words to inquire. And for a community that is as progressive as Bloomington, has as many resources as Bloomington. You know the folks who stand alongside uh, people of color and Black communities in particular, and Jewish communities as well are well positioned uh, to, you know, to speak up and speak out and speak often, um, and to use their resources to, to make a difference.
0: One of the things that I wondered about when I saw this was, was there any flack that you received from the from anyone? For putting the march together or putting the rally together,
1: well, to be clear, uh, I wasn't at all a lead organizer for uh, for the rally. Uh, Indivisible Ninth District, uh, under the leadership of Abby Ong. Uh, she just kind of really put it together and showed it out, um, and her team um, as well. So, definitely want to give some credit and kudos there. Uh, but in terms of you know pushback and flack. None that I have seen, um, but I will also say that I am working from 5 a.m. to well past 5 p.m., so I very well may could have missed it. Um, But most of the feedback that I have seen and that has been in front of me has been positive. I'm encouraging.
0: Excellent. How about you, Denise?
5: Um, Yeah, there was no flack from anyone, and I wasn't actually, like, one of the organizers as well. I was talking with Abby and um, counseling with her, as she put together the march, or the rally, um, but I wasn't actually one of the primary organizers. I was working with organizers throughout the state. Yeah,
3: I was going to say, you're a state organizer, right? Right. So our producer just handed us a note, and uh, <clears throat> he wants to know about the Antifa disruption on uh, demonstrations.
1: Yes, um, so I can speak to that, uh, since I was the person who interrupted it. That's um, <laughs> right. Well, I'll be clear, like, I don't know the Antifa organizers personally, um, and I also don't uh, hold any uh, grudge or malice. Um, But what happened, from my perspective, is that uh, I believe a member of their leadership uh, spoke during uh, the open mic portion, for lack of a better term, and then afterward uh, gathered uh, his supporters uh, to do um, a march uh, up and down uh, the the varying streets um, with the bullhorn. Um, And I was really concerned about that uh, because that wasn't in keeping with the spirit of the rally. Um, And frankly, I found it disrespectful to the many uh, speakers there, particularly the women of color who helped organize the rally um, and took the lead on that, as well as the women of color who were speaking. Um, to To have a white man who calls himself an ally uh, stand up and literally take the mic, um, n- not even take the mic, create his own mic, um, and and start a march that had no input or support from the folks who were most uh, impacted by the events in Charlottesville was grossly disrespectful. So I, I felt the need to interrupt that and to name it.
3: Yeah, somebody, uh, I think Beth uh, was telling us that you stepped up and took care of business yesterday.
1: Um, I I will take credit, yes, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll testify to it. <laughs> and you should. Yeah, I I don't typically like being. Oh well, I did this, but I I did that, and like I I felt moved to do so uh, for the reasons I named previously.
3: So, I think one of the main topics um, on the uh, news shows over the last couple of days is the president's. Kind of lackluster response uh, towards the uh, agitators and and the Charlottesville incidents, and well he came out with the new comments today, oh yeah, after being under considerable pressure and it has absolutely no uh credibility
5: in, oh. in, in my mind,
3: none whatsoever.
5: How many hours away was it? Who wrote it for him? Yeah,
0: well, exactly. Go. Like well, as I put on Facebook, it took President Redo two days to have someone to, it, to find someone in his administration that could rewrite it.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But even when he first um, <clears throat> made his remarks, that was my observation immediately. He's speaking too generally, because you know, it, actually, I had a chance to speak at the rally yesterday, and one of the things that I pointed out was this guy had no problem when he took office. He immediately condemned Black Lives Matter as a hate group. And he uh, told them that they had uh, no business being in this country. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Black Lives Matter has never uh, uh, showed up at any rallies uh, with weapons. That's correct. They have never attacked a police officer. They've never called for the death of a police officer. And they have certainly never driven a car into a crowd of innocent people. But take that, and this guy, he can call them a hate group, but he can't even criticize any of these uh, uh, white supremacist groups specifically. You know, and then... Who have historically been hate groups. Yeah, they're the the oldest uh, terrorist group in the United States is the KKK. And David Duke came on yesterday and said, we are fulfilling the wishes of Donald Trump. And he, he, I remember back during the campaign, he refused to denounce David Duke. And he did not respond to that comment yesterday either. And then uh, even after that, so you have these Republican senators, Marco Rubio, Orrin Hatch, uh, Rand Paul, and they criticize uh, President Trump's uh, speech about Charlottesville. And to me, too little too late because they got this guy where he is they are slow to stand up to him and they are the only thing standing in the way of removing this guy from office and they're still dragging their feet if they were serious about it then they would be out front and leading the charge uh, against all of this nonsense instead of hiding behind press releases
5: so this is I'm I'm wondering, you said the oldest hate group in the United States is the KKK. Mm-hmm. So, Ter- terrorist group. Cr- terrorist group. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wouldn't it be the Confederates? And isn't that what they were gathering in Charlotte, Virginia, for yesterday? To take down the, um, or not yesterday, but they gathered to protest the removal of, of but a confederate general well but that was I a war there, can you, um, can you i'll really...
1: interrupt for a second okay um i think it's less valuable to figure out which group is the oldest that's true right and then really focus in and name on name the fact that a, a, a significant part of our country's leg- leg- legacy and history is rooted in treating people who have darker skin as unequals. There used to be a time very early on in the country's foundation when that wasn't a thing, or was significantly less of a thing. But uh, the folks who founded this country—and I won't name names because my history is a little bit rusty and I want to be inaccurate—but you know, the people that we may think of as founding fathers decided, hmm, if we can create this division between um, lighter-skinned folks, quote unquote, white and darker skinned folks quote unquote black then you know we can we can turn a profit essentially um and i think that's the that's the idea worth uh zooming in on and worth dissecting and pushing back on you know i think about a conversation i was having with my partner um over the weekend um you know and he's he's just he's a lot of really wonderful things um and intellectually sharp is one of them and he noted you know if white folks um on this you know white nationalist kick, you know, wanting to celebrate, quote-unquote, white history, quote-unquote, European history, if they want to do that, why aren't they celebrating the white people who, I don't know, helped bring an end to slavery? Why aren't they erecting statues to Abraham Lincoln? And my partner is being a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's worth noting that there's a very narrow segment of white history that uh, these groups are interested in, and it gives the lie to what they're really about. Um, So I think it's really worthwhile dissecting dissecting that mindset and that history and less valuable to figure out who did who threw the first stone.
0: One of the things we have to remember that wasn't that long ago that we're the only country to go to war with each other because half the population thought they should be able to own the other half. So none of this is really surprising to me because nothing has really changed over those years. And until we come to grips with the fact of the matter is that we're all equal and we're all in this together as long as someone's trying to think they're better or more superior than another person, I don't know how you change that mindset. And that's the frustrating thing. As I said earlier, I've been fighting this since the 60s in Berkeley. I've seen marches. I've seen rallies. Lord knows I've seen marches and rallies. And it's the same thing all over again. When are we going to come to a solution? Denise,
3: you wanted to address that?
5: When are we going to come to a solution? I hope it's in our lifetimes. I hope that I, I I have gotten hope again you know I talked about waking up and not having hope but I've got hope again because I haven't seen those rallies. I you know I was born in the 60s. I haven't seen the marches. I was in a bubble working to try to support my family and just doing my own thing until I got woke up. So I'm hoping that in my lifetime, our children see a, a solution coming about.
3: So Wanda, let, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> would you agree that these uh, um, white supremacists, neo Nazis, uh, white nationalists, uh, many of them are are angry and protesting and fighting based on a falsehood? that those statues, that flag, is part of their heritage because um, those statues were not erected and put up until the beginning or or maybe uh, midway through the uh, civil rights movement. That was a response to the civil rights movement. So those statues didn't go up after the civil war and and they're they're trying to portray it as if they're being robbed of their heritage.
1: That's interesting. i would say that uh these statues and the men um that are commemorated no matter when they were erected um whether it's you know in the civil rights era prior to that and just to affirm to affirm your history there um it is a part of their heritage however it's 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 a part of their heritage that should be shameful um and that's what i find disturbing is that uh, folks are not um, ashamed, and then therefore angry um, at what men like Robert E. Lee uh, represent um, and, and stand and stood for. Um, so, yeah, white folks should absolutely own that Robert E. Lee is part of their past and that slavery is a part of their past, but the, celebra- the celebratory aspect is what uh, unnerves and disturbs me.
3: It belongs in a museum.
1: Yes.
0: Exactly. So, well, we have about two minutes, so I'm going to let both guests take have some last statements about uh, the rally yesterday. What's going on in this country?
5: Well, we for me we briefly talked about um, you know the hope that I've got, and there were ten uh, vigils that we know of in Indiana, and there, we're finding out about more of them every day. And those vigils had Indy ten Black Lives Matter matter involved, Black Lives Matter in uh, Bloomington. They didn't even know each other existed. You know so we're seeing that people are coming together. we're putting people out in front and taking a a, a back seat and asking them to give us a direction on what we're mm-hmm. supposed to do
3: uh Wanda, before you respond, we neglected to tell our audience what it is that you do and who you represent
1: great um so uh, my name is Wanda Savala. I'm the public affairs manager for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Indiana and Kentucky. Um, and that would uh, transition smoothly into kind of my last thoughts here. So, um, as I said in my remarks uh, uh, last night, you know, this is, racial justice is a reproductive justice issue. Uh, for your listeners who may not be uh, familiar with the reproductive justice framework, um, it was a uh, framework developed uh, in the mid-90s by Black women at an international conference in recognition of the fact that. Uh, that the fight uh, for reproductive freedom isn't solely about abortion. It's really about having whole communities, whole families, whole people. So uh, that does include abortion, but it also includes safe neighborhoods, it includes clean drinking water, it includes uh, lead-free homes. It includes a number of different things that would impact a family life. Um, it includes violence against black people and making sure that that, that that comes to an end. So when I said racial justice is reproductive justice, that was, that's what I meant. Um, and I think it's really imperative uh, for folks who uh, support Planned Parenthood, which is where I work, um, to make that connection and carry that with them as they continue to advocate um, for, for issues that are central to the to someone's reproductive system, but also to their whole bodies, their whole lives. Um, So that's what I really wanted people to really grasp uh, yesterday when I spoke at the rally.
0: Thank you. We want to thank Denise Valkyrie and Wanda Savala for joining us tonight to discuss their involvement with this weekend's protest rally, Stand in Solidarity with Charlottesville,
3: Bloomington Comes Together to Say No to White Supremacy. If you have an event that you want us to know about, and if you have an opinion of current black issues, send your comments to Bring It On at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea.
0: And I'm Cornelius Wright. You're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB, 91.3 FM on your radio, and live on the web at
3: WFHB.org. We also want to thank Beth Applegate, co-chair of the Bloomington organization Stand Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, for joining us to discuss a variety of social incidents and concerns that seemingly are manifesting with greater and greater regularity in our country.
0: Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Jim Thrasher. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker for WFHB.
3: I'm Cornelius, Wright. I'm William Hosea. Tune in next Monday, August 21st at 6 PM. And we will be discussing, uh, we'll be hosting Liz Watson candidate for the ninth congressional seat. Um, right here on Bring It On, your community radio station, WFHB.
1: You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.